Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks again for joining us on Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. And today's guest is known as the ESOP evangelist, and an ESOP is an employee stock ownership plan. And we're going to talk about that today as an option for business owners to look into. And we'll, we'll get into some more details on that if you haven't heard about that in the past. Our guest earned her nursing degree and then worked as a nurse for 15 years before embarking on her entrepreneurial journey. She's a gifted entrepreneur that has established several successful businesses throughout her 30 plus year career. She has extensive experience buying, selling and running businesses. Now adding to that experience is selling through an ESOP, which has provided her with the insight to help other business owners protect their legacy and sell with integrity. Please welcome president, CEO, and founder of Excel Legacy Group, Patty Plue. Hey, Patty, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Dr. Gary? I'm terrific. And I, you know, I want to go into your history, but I want to give a little bit of insight here because I actually have a client that I worked with for years, family-owned business, one of the largest drywall companies in the country, top 10 in the country. And they ran this company for about 50 or 60 years. And I know there was a lot of things with family ownership and how to go to the next level and do things. And they offered the ESOP option to their employees. And I just think it's such a great option for owners to be able to see their financial investment for all of those years come to fruition and give them a a life that they've worked so hard to be able to build into. And we're going to talk about that. But it's kind of an you know, you, so you went from nursing to an entrepreneurship to an ESOP. I mean, I think I know how you went from entrepreneurship to ESOP, but how did you transition from being a nurse into an entrepreneur? What what was, what did that look like? Well, there was a wonderful doctor at the facility I worked at that made an observation, and this was in 1990, that anything that I was passionate about or believed in, pretty much I had the majority of the nurses at the facility, for an example, going to the beautician that I just absolutely loved. And one day he said to me, you know, you're really an entrepreneur. You don't belong here. You belong owning your own business. Well, I came from a blue collar family. And I'll be honest, I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur meant. And I went into the med room, opened up the dictionary at the time and found out what an entrepreneur was. That doctor not only encouraged me, but he was the medical director of the very first business that I started. So he not only encouraged me, but he helped me to launch my first business. So I owe him a world of gratitude. And from there, once you are, your mind is opened up to all these possibilities that come with being an entrepreneur. It it was really one opportunity after another that I saw and took advantage of 
or I saw a need because at, at the basis of all of this and why I went into uh, becoming a nurse is the core value is I love helping people, whatever that looks like. So if it was being a nurse, if it was in, in my very next career after that, was helping my clients look at health risks so they could prevent high blood pressure, heart attacks, strokes, etc. And that was my wellness company. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was the very first thing that I embarked on is wellness. And that's actually the company I turned into an ESOP. Yeah, hold on, hold on a second, because this is this is interesting because there, there's a pivot point here that happened in your life that is has multiple levels to it as I hear it. You know, number one is this doctor saying to you, you're an entrepreneur, which you had to find out what the heck that was. So somebody saw this talent in you, not just in the way you thought about business, but then the same doctor was also saying to you, I'm willing to work for you in a business. He went to work for you, with you, okay? Which meant that he respected your leadership, you know, because leadership is based on trust. And it's like, hey, you want to be an entrepreneur. And if you are, I'll come work for you, which is, that's a big deal. It is. And and when we're young, may not think about that kind of stuff, you know, because of our background, our experience, like you said, a blue collar, you know, my parents, when I started my first business, they were like, what are you doing? I mean, you, you're supposed to be working for somebody, right? And I'm like, I am yeah. working for me and for my clients, right? So you yeah. had to make that mind shift, didn't you? Yes, I did. But one of the things that my parents always taught me is that you give 110%. Of no matter what you're doing, you give 110%. And I think that that's missing today. And that actually um, helped me. I was doing prior to wellness, there was a business prior to the wellness business. I was doing insurance physicals and investigations and drug testing in the workplace. And the, the medical director that helped me was. I think it was the CMO at the time is the name. It's been so many years since I have done drug testing in the workplace, but that's the role that he played for my drug testing company. But it was during that time that one of the companies that I was doing insurance physicals and investigations for asked me to go to Chicago. Now I lived in Wisconsin and they asked me to do a physical on a VP for Northwestern Railway, and they weren't offering me any more money, and it was an hour and a half drive there and back, and it was, I was being paid $36 to do it. Mm. And because of my upbringing from my family, I was helping them, so I said yes. Even though I wasn't being compensated, I knew that I was helping somebody else. Well, I went down and I did that physical on that gentleman. And he asked me, do you do wellness programs? Well, this is 1990. Mm. And I said, let me check into that and I'll get back to you. And so I did. And I asked, I worked for five paramedical exam companies at the time and nobody had heard of wellness. So I opened up the yellow pages and I found the company that 
I just turned into an ESOP, I met the founder. And if I would have said no to that, it's only $27, it's not worth, or $36, it's not worth my time. And I didn't go above and beyond. I would have never been asked about wellness. I would have never thought to look up the gentleman who literally, that, that appointment changed my life. So I began working with the founder of Helix and we started working together, going on sales calls. I was the only one at the time servicing the accounts. I was the nurse out in the field drawing the blood and doing the biometric, other biometric uh, measurements, and then going over the reports with the participants and helping them to lead a, a healthier lifestyle so that they could prevent some of these diseases. So how did you how did you transition? This is a typical entrepreneurial story, right? You took your technical skill as a nurse, yep. you started to provide that for a fee in the marketplace. Yep. But you to become a true entrepreneur, you have to then expand and and sell and market and get other nurses to do what you were doing and you you yep. now become the the founder, the CEO, the president, whatever you want to call that top role and stop doing the nursing. How did you make that transition? It was just a matter of there wasn't enough of me to go around. So what I did is I started training others to do the exact same process that I was doing and I started one at a time. So in the early days, I was out in the field working side by side with the other staff members doing the exact same thing. And then once it got to the point that I, I really needed to be managing them more than out in the field, then I made that transition to doing the scheduling. And I started out doing, you know, the scheduling of all the exams and the making sure they had all the equipment and the supplies. And then when we got bigger than that, then I hired people to help me do that. And fast forward to, two th well, 2001, I met a gentleman that was a nurse and I introduced him to the owner of Helix at the time because he was not in my territory. And so he started selling and servicing in his area. And then when the owner of Helix decided to retire, he asked us if we would be interested in buying him out. So we partnered to buy him out. And at that time, I brought 20, 23 employees with me, 25, including my husband and myself. And so we purchased Helix. My husband was just part-time at the time. He was a medic in the service. So he was doing biometrics, not necessarily drawing blood. But then when we bought the founder of Helix out, my husband was a long-term employee at American Airlines. And so he retired from American Airlines to take over the CFO role at Helix. And from there, we, we, I, I believe Helix had four employees at the time. And from there, we went to 100 employees in probably a year or two because wellness at the time was 
just exploding in the marketplace. So talk to me a little bit about the challenge that you had, though, from going from technician to kind of small business owner uh, to kind of running a certain number of people, but then to actually buying the business and you became an owner with 100 people and the skills that are needed. We talk about this in management leadership all the time, right? The skills that you have as a technician, as an individual contributor are nothing like the skills that you need as a leader manager of people. So now you've got you've got finances, you've got people, you've got hiring, you've got firing, you've got standards, you've got training, you've got human resource management, you've got all of these things that with a nursing degree, you don't have any background in it. Correct. So how did you fill in those blanks? How did you what was it like and what did it feel like? I mean, were the days when you walked in and you go, okay, another day of challenges, I got to figure another thing out. I mean, that had to be happening a lot. It was happening somewhat. But what I just took one day at a time, it was like an elephant. You take one bite at a time. So this this area, we needed to hire people to fill, you know, that we had screenings, uh, wellness screenings coming in because my partner was focused on sales. So we identified right then and there that his specialty would be sales and mine would be service. So I had already developed the protocols because what I based that on is what I did when I was the one and only screener in the field. And I just I just put that to paper and I trained the other examiners or nurses or phlebotomists how to do exactly what I was doing because what I found through trial and error is standards that decreased complaints. So you have your best practices that are obvious, but then you also have practices that you've developed over time. For instance, I'll give you an example. Hospitals and most medical facilities now use electronic blood pressure cuffs. Well, what we found in the field when somebody's coming off of a line, say at a factory, and they come in to have their blood pressure checked, we found that the electronic cuff, if they were even borderline high blood pressure, could have a false elevation. So we found that out, That's and we switched back to manual cuffs. That's just one of the things that, even though the majority of medical professionals and medical facilities were now transitioned to electronic, we went back to manual because The name of the game was you wanted your clients to be happy. You wanted your participants, the employees, to have the very best results that they could possibly have. So did you ever have anybody in your organization that resisted some of that where you you hired them? They did a pretty good job, but uh, you found that over time they didn't want to do it your way. Well, of course, that's true in any business, right? And, And what did you have to do there? Well, we had protocols that had to be followed and uh, business standards. And I, I was, when I retired from Helix, when we turned it into an ESA, I was the president and CEO of operations because that was where my skill sets lied. Okay. I was very good at organizing processes, procedures, 
and we had to have a performance. There were performance, they're called PIPs, performance improvement. Performance improvement plans, yep. Correct. So we had to have processes in place. And if our employees didn't follow the processes, obviously there were there was a protocol in place on how to handle situations. But I also had managers in place at that time. So once I got to a point that I could not do it myself, I knew I had to bring somebody else on, a manager, a director, and I had to train them on what I was doing. Very early on, about four months after purchasing Helix, we hired an HR manager. So that was very helpful because we knew that we knew what we knew, we knew what we were good at, but we also knew the areas where there were gaps, where we needed additional support, and we hired for those accordingly. So how did you handle this? It sounds like you had, you had certain standards in place, certain expectations and values. You had a mission of, of wellness and trying to help your clients out and do it in a way that was humanistic and it was engaging. And As we say in the medical field, having a good bedside manner. Correct. It's an important part of wellness and health, right? We know that there's a significant impact on someone's health when we treat them with respect, listen to them and work with them as they go through this process of healing or, or just being better in better health. How did you handle like the, the really top notch policy following perfect nurse who just their emotional intelligence wasn't there. Their bedside manner wasn't there. How did you work with those that didn't seem to connect with their clients? We actually, during the interview process, when we were hiring, that was one of the things that we looked for is bedside manner. So how, do you, how did you assess that? Um, I think our listeners would love to know how you figured out how to assess bedside manner in an interview. Well, I, I have to defer, honestly, to my, um, I personally, I don't know that I can put it into words, Dr. Gary, but it was just a knowing and a sense when I would talk to them, if I knew that they would be kind and caring, that they, I think I looked for empathy. And then when we hired the uh, HR manager, they actually brought tools to the table from their areas of expertise and questions that they would ask in the interview process that how would you handle this? I mean, I think I asked in early on, how would you handle this difficult situation and wait for their feedback? But I was also looking for empathy. I was looking for um, and I had a knowing in a sense if somebody was going to be kind. Now, I'm not saying that 100% of the time we nailed it, okay? Because it's not a perfect world, right? No, but you you used your intuition and you, as we say, our intuition, our gut feel, right? You can get I a did. feel for someone not just in what they say, but how they say it when right. they're having the conversation and even the reaction, you give them a tough situation. How would you take care of this? And they go, Oh, right. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really know. Let me think about that for a second. And the fact that they're taking that second to think about it means a lot. 
They don't just have a, an automatic reaction. This is, this is how I'd handle, I know how to handle these things, right? right. <laughs> and they've, they've practiced their interview questions, right? You want to get to the heart of the person, right? That's exactly and that's how you build right. your company, it sounds like, yeah. Right, yeah. that's exactly right. We are, in a lot of the work that I do with a lot of different companies, I always tell people, look, it's multiple interviews and multiple situations with multiple people in multiple ways. Right. And then you come together and actually get a sense of it. And I found out when I was hired with Procter & Gamble in 1980 that they have a yeah, but hiring policy. And here's how it goes, Patty. They interview with seven or eight people over two days, and then they get together. And at the end of the second day, if anybody sits there and goes, you know, Patty was good, but... You're not hired. Right. It's yeah, but. And everybody goes, yeah. And yeah, I think Patty's a good fit. She she could really be part of this team. It really, really feels good. Actually, you know, has all the technical knowledge and everything, but she's a human. You know? <laughs> so that's what we're looking for, right? We are. And a, another thing, you know, there are, every company has their own culture. And, and somebody that you're hiring has to fit in with that culture. They have to be a good fit with your company. And that's something else we looked at as well. Uh, And we did something very similar as Procter & Gamble once we had more staff. At first, when I was hiring, I went more on my gut, my intuition. And then when we grew and we had an HR manager and we had managers and directors, they were all involved in the interview and the hiring process. And, and there actually came a point where I was no longer involved in it at all, mm-hmm. unless it was a leadership position. For instance, we just hired a president for Helix and they started December 1st. Now I'm on the board. I remain on the board. So each board member interviewed the candidates for this position and yeah. So I was involved then, but there did come a point when Helix was at 200 employees that I was not part of the interview process anymore. I had a COO, I had a vice presidents, and they basically handled it. Sure. And they, uh, you, you, you taught them, you worked from the very beginning. You talked about you do, you, then you find somebody to train, you train that person in your image. That's right. And now I've got two people now, and then eventually grown to 200. So and you just multiply, just multiply. And it, it, it sounds easy. It's not, is it? It's not easy at all. Well, it's not. I'll tell you what's not easy about it. More employees is just, that's just numbers, right? It's, and what I mean by that is if you do it and then you teach someone else, just like you, you do what I do. Okay. And then you have them practice in front of you. That's easy. What's what's not easy is when you are growing so fast because we went through a period of time at Helix that we were growing so fast that we could not, it was a challenge to keep up with the growth and hire enough people to do the job, get them trained accordingly and good training. That was one of our biggest challenges, Dr. Gary, is when we were growing at warp speed and to keep up with that and hire quality people and train them the way that I wanted to see the training be done, 
that was, I would have to say that was our biggest challenge. Did you at any point during that say, okay, slow down because our brand is important. And yes. if we just hire anybody off the street, we're going to screw up this brand and our culture. We can't yes. do that. So yes. slow down. How did you say no to clients and said, can you please come in and do this? And you're leaving money on the table, but you have to do that, right? That was a huge challenge because we've mm-hmm. got a sales department and, and the, the problem with that. Okay. So you say, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't service you. They go to a competitor. All right. And they stay with that competitor and then they refer other people they know to that competitor. And how many clients did you really lose? So that was as an entrepreneur, I'm going to put the entrepreneur hat on right now. As an entrepreneur, I didn't want to say no to anybody. No entrepreneur does. No. And yet, and yet, yet and yet, it is the most important word an entrepreneur must learn. Right. And so that was a challenge. So what I did is I tried to hire and train. Well, I had my manager hire and train more managers. So some of our, let's just take the wellness division as an example. What we did when we were growing, I was trying to come up with solutions so that we didn't have to say no, because I know what the, the, negative effects of that are. So we're trying to multiply ourselves so we can hire more, train more. So what we did is we took some of our, I'm going to say, platinum examiners. And we started putting them out in the field and they would shadow the new examiners so that the the manager of the examiners wasn't out there. So they could focus on the hiring and the in-house training. And then we had examiners out in the field that it could actually do the shadowing and then let us know when they could be checked off and that they could be on their own. But what it, it didn't mean on their own. So there was typically two examiners at each wellness event, two or more, a minimum of two. So then the next step, what we came up with during that growth period is we would assign that person that was just checked off from shadowing with another platinum examiner that they could work side by side with. So they may be doing the biometrics and the platinum examiner doing the blood drawing or vice versa, and they could switch until we were comfortable that they could 100%. So there was a tiered program with us, okay? And let's just use a five-star system instead of platinum. So it was a five-star examiner, four-star, three-star. A three-star examiner could never be on their own. They always had to be paired with a five or a four-star examiner. Or What I mean by that is the three-star could never be with a one or two star that was right. Just- so you you create an organizational structure and support within Correct. the organization, and and established uh, levels of expertise Correct. that uh, could. Uh, I've got a client that has done this called a rank and rating system, actually, and they've got five levels, just like you talked about. And it and each level requires different levels of expertise. Correct. But at the higher level, it's not just knowing how to do it, but also having the capability to train others. That's right. Right. 
So that's that's a good way to leverage the uh, expertise that you had in the organization. So here we are. You, you've gone to this position where you've got 100 people or so. And uh, you've gotten to a point where you're thinking, is, is this it? Is this, this all there is? And you decide, I don't really want to do this anymore. I've, I've had enough or I want to transition. I want to, instead of making a few dollars each year, uh, I want to sell my company. I want to transition, get, you know, sell it just like you did. You bought it from the original owner, right? So there's options, right? You can, you can sell it to a few people. You can sell it to a bigger company. But you decided to go towards the direction of an ESOP. Well, prior to that, we realized that we needed clinics because we were just a wellness vendor. We did wellness and coaching. And if we wanted to compete in the marketplace, we needed to either develop clinics or we needed to partner with a clinic vendor. In 2018, we merged with a clinic vendor, adding 100 additional employees to our our staff. And we then did on-site clinics. It was actually after that that uh, we started getting phone calls from third-party buyers wanting to buy our company. And... So, okay, hold on a second. This has got to be an exciting thing. Here you are, like the CEO, right? Or maybe you're on the board by now. I and am. you get a call and they say, we'd like to buy your, your company. Come on. What did that feel like? I mean, that had to be like, you had to get off the phone feeling like, yeah, that's, that, that's pretty cool. Well, it was the company that offered us 30% over fair market value that got our blood going. <laughs> I'll bet it did. I'll bet it did. All this work that you've been doing for decades now, and you now you're getting somebody calling you up, right? And uh, so, what, come on, what was that first phone call like? I mean, that had to you, you pick the phone up, somebody's answering, they said they want to buy you. What was that like? Well, we were getting that we were getting them frequently, like several a week, okay, and from third party buyers. But like I said, it, yes, the first one was, oh my gosh, we're we're like important. I mean, we're getting yeah. noticed. And then uh, one of my partners said, oh, they call all the time. And I said, oh, okay. Oh, don't so, burst my bubble. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I get these all the time. So, but it, like I said, it was the company that offered us 30% over fair market value that we all said, we really need to take a look at this. Mm-hmm. and. I mean, any business owner would, right? Any business owner would. I mean, so anyway, we were going down that path. And going down that path, I have been in business for 30 years at this time, right? And I've known other companies that were bought out by third-party buyers. And within 24 hours, everybody lost their job. Right down the road Mm. from Helix, that happened. Mm. Right down the road. It was an individual that I was on a board with and the company was 110 years old. The granddaughters took it over, sold it to a third party buyer because they didn't want anything to do with it. It was manufacturing. People that were there for 48 years lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. And so that's in the back of my head because I knew that the offer for 30% more was a roll up. I knew from another state, I knew that the risk of our employees could be 
they lose their job at our company. And let's let's connect the dots here for our listeners for just a second, because this goes back to your childhood, right? You 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 said we came from blue collar. Your parents were, you know, working hard, making a living. Yes. And if they lost their job, it could be devastating. So yeah. you were thinking about your employees and their future, and w- what else can we do to prevent something like this to happen? Right. And yeah. that got you towards, I guess, I'm assuming, jump forward. That got you to the ESOP. Well, that happened by my husband and I meeting with a wealth management specialist because of the third party buyout. Mm -hmm. And we sat down because, I mean, there were six partners at that time because of the merger with the other company and including my husband and I. And we were sitting down with this wealth management specialist. And about two hours into the meeting, he said, I may be leaving leaving money on the table and I would love to help you, but all I've heard about is how much you're concerned about your employees and what's going to happen to them. I honestly think you'd be better off with an ESOP. And he said, Do you know what one do you know what an ESOP is? And my husband and I said, Yes, it's you know, employee-owned company, right? And he said, Yes, but do you know what the benefits are? And we didn't know what the benefits were, and he proceeded to tell us. So I was so excited when I heard the benefits, I went back to my partners and I said, hey, listen to this. I just found this out. And they said, but we're being offered 30% more and and ESOPs only guarantee fair market value. So the very next week, we had an appointment with a third-party buyer who at that first meeting looked at the balance sheet after they had done their assessment and knocked the 30% off due to add backs on the balance sheet that they weren't going to allow. So all of a sudden we found ourselves at fair market value. And I went back to the partners and I said, Hey, if this is only going to go south from here, you know what? That was the first meeting, but we can get fair market value from an ESOP. Why don't we check into it? And that started the whole process. And we all were on board and we all moved forward, received fair market value for our company. And the rest is history. And and the history is this. And and, uh, I I know in, in my conversations with Patty is helping other companies, other business owners consider this option of an ESOP. And, and all of the, the tax benefits of it, the, uh, the financial benefits of it, and the human benefits of it by uh, giving back to their employees, um, their, their company that many of them have worked for 10, 20, 30 years in, right. which, uh, which is what you do now is you help companies consider ESOPs, right? This is the next entrepreneurial venture for Patty, right? Right. It is because when I was telling other business owners that I have associations with about the benefits of ESOPs, one of the things that I discovered is nobody, I I think I met one person that had checked into an ESOP before that knew what the benefits of ESOPs were. Mm -hmm. And I thought there needs to be more education out there. There's companies right now as baby boomers selling their companies and they don't know about these great benefits. And as far as I'm concerned, this is the best transition plan for any company that has 15 full-time employees or more, because that's really the only criteria 
is 15 full-time employees or more to take advantage of this absolutely phenomenal exit strategy that I believe in with all my heart. So Penny, what what are one or two benefits that somebody might get from an ESOP? Let's not tell them all because we don't want to give them all the information. I want them to call you and talk to you and email you and find out, but uh, wet the whistle a little bit. Tell me what, what I would get as a business owner if I was to go into this on this path of an ESOP. You've all heard of 501c3s, right? And they're tax-free. They don't have to pay taxes. When you become an ESOP, you function like a 501c3 and your corporation no longer pays corporate taxes. So let's say today you're a regular corporate entity and tomorrow you're an ESOP. You are now 33 to 40% larger than you were yesterday just by being an ESOP. So the value of the company goes up immediately because of that. Right. Because no, you're that 33 to 40% is now going to the bottom of the balance sheet. Mm. And does that mean, does that mean the value of the organization under that valuation offers more uh, financial reward for the owners in putting it into an ESOP? Well, the owners are, they, prior to the ESOP, they're given fair market value. The company actually buys out the owners. Okay. So originally, or in the beginning, those monies saved on taxes are used to either pay the bank loan or owner financing out. And then it's used to accelerate the growth of the company. It's used for the retirement plan for the new shareholders, which are your employees, after a vesting period that they have to go through. Wow, that's that's exciting stuff. So I'm going to ask you what I ask everybody at the end of my podcasts, Patty. If you were to write yourself a letter and send it back to Patty 20, 30, 40 years ago, what would you write to Patty? What would you tell yourself? What advice would you give yourself if you could write yourself a letter and say, hey, Patty, pay attention to this? What would it say? I wish I would have known about ESOPs back then. And the benefits of ESOPs, because I probably would have focused on, I feel right now what with what I'm doing and educating other business owners about this absolutely tremendous transition plan, that it is by far in my career the best thing I've ever done. Wow. Wow. Well, that that's something for people to listen to and maybe look into. And uh, I've heard a lot about ESOPs over the years, but don't know that much about it. And I've learned a lot from you in uh, some of our conversations and really appreciate it. So I want to thank you for being our guest today, for sharing your story and for espousing this wonderful option for owners, the employee stock ownership plans that can make their lives going into old age like us. I'm sorry to say, but it makes it very wealthy for them. It's great. It does. And it gives the employees a, a ownership in their own company, which I think is That's just right. freaking awesome. And a windfall benefit, retirement benefit, is it's like a 401k on steroids. And there are five other benefits that if you think the ones I mentioned were too good to be true, you'll say the same thing about the rest. 
but I will save that for. Let's save that for the phone calls and the emails. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about ESOPs, I will put in the show notes, Patty Plew's information and please get in touch with her and reach out to her to find more and more. She's also on LinkedIn and we'll get all that information in our show notes. Thank you so much today for joining us, Patty, and sharing your, your journey and your expertise, the ESOP evangelist. Thanks a lot, Patty Plew. Thank you. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks again for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit petercats.com.